Are you still doom scrolling about COVID-19? Stop it already. Instead of staying despaired in a pandemic-fueled Groundhog Day moment, let's put these past two years into perspective. COVID-19 is unprecedented in many ways, yeah, but people have dealt with epidemics and pandemics for thousands of years. So how did they get through them? And what can we learn from that past? I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. Last spring, my LA Times colleague Jessica Roy set out to write a story about the end of COVID-19 and then the pandemic kept going. But it has to end eventually, right? We'll talk about that today. And later in the episode, we'll chat with a medical historian about how diseases have changed the course of history, because that's what we're living through right now, folks. History. One of my favorite quotes ever is from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. And let me do my SpongeBob with thick glasses here right now. Here it is. There is nothing new under the sun. So even though Omicron is doing its thing right now, this too shall pass. That's another favorite quote of mine. And I thought it was biblical, but actually it seems to be Persian. Hey, today I learned... So yeah, we ain't in anything that our ancestors didn't deal with already. Jessica Roy found this out in her reporting. She's an assistant editor on the LA Times' utility journalism team. Jessica, welcome to The Times. Hi, thanks for having me. So you went out and reported on some of the most consequential pandemics of the last century. We'll talk about some of them in a bit, but first, what are the typical ways that pandemics have ended in the past? Pandemics have ended a lot of different ways in the United States and around the world. We've ended some with vaccinations. We've ended some with public health measures that brought it back under control. And some have just died out and we're not really sure why. Those are always a big mystery. Like the one that you always learn about in high school was a bubonic plague from the 1300s that just killed so much of Europe. And then it just kind of faded away. Right. It feels like COVID has been going on forever and will go on forever. But if you look back throughout history, even in the last century, we've had a bunch of pandemics and they did end. Yeah, the most famous one, of course, is the one that we heard about the most in the early days of COVID-19, the 1918 flu. It killed 50 million people worldwide. And until COVID-19 happened, it was the most lethal pandemic in U.S. history. And in those early days, the 1918 flu was what we were comparing our present day pandemic to. But the medical professionals you talked to actually said we can't take too many lessons from it. Yeah, looking into the Spanish flu was so interesting. In a lot of ways, it's definitely the most analogous to COVID. It sort of sprung up overnight. It hit super hard. It all took place over the course of about two years. And so definitely a lot in common. But it was the flu, which we were already very familiar with. It also killed much younger people, which was very alarming. And it killed them very, very fast. People could wake up and feel fine and be dead by the time they they were ready to go to bed that night, basically. What's interesting to me are the similarities in society between 1918 and today. Actually, when I started working on this story, it was all the way back in May. (laughs) My boss and I were like, well, you know, everybody can get a COVID vaccine now. Obviously, we're going to have hot back summer. Pandemic's going to end. And then if we had the roaring 20s after the Spanish flu, are we going to have another roaring 20s? Is it going to be hot Gatsby party autumn 2021? But there were a ton of super interesting similarities between then and now. There were, yeah, racial tensions and protests and uprisings in cities around the country. There was a very widely unpopular one-term president who had a lot of nationalist policies. 
There was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment at the time. And so when I first started working on this story, it was going to be a super interesting piece about how many uh, things are in common between the 1920s and now. Income inequality is, I learned, worse now than it was in what we called the Gilded Age that was the run-up to the stock market crash. Wow. How did the 1918 pandemic actually end? The 1918 flu pandemic never went away in that it became an endemic thing. Strains that caused the Spanish flu, we still have those today. People still catch a strain of the flu that was the strain that people had then, but it did something called attenuation, where over time it became less fatal, less serious. It became just what we think of now as the flu, as opposed to you wake up and feel fine and then you're dead less than 24 hours later. I did not know that. Today I learned. Okay, so next up in our pandemic countdown, polio. Polio survivor Rita Burgoyes says even her mom and dad couldn't visit her for months while she was hospitalized. Polio was super big in the 1940s and terrorized families in the early 1950s because the disease mostly affected children. I can remember seeing my parents standing at the door with white gowns, their shoes covered with some kind of white booties, white masks over their face, and all we could see was their eyes. It was so scary, they wouldn't even let him in the room. Remind us of how devastating this disease was. It wasn't just that it was fatal. It paralyzed a ton of children. It left them in iron lungs or disabled in other ways. And much like COVID now, it, it seemed to strike very suddenly. It spread in swimming pools. It spread if kids shared glasses, uh, like glasses of drinking water. And so, yeah, it seemed like there was no way to protect your children. They could get it from anywhere. People, schools closed down, pools closed down. People really took a lot of precautions, uh, but it was hard. It was a very viral disease. And then a miracle happened, probably one of the most famous vaccines ever. 1955, a year of anxiety and triumph. A major medical hurdle was crossed with the discovery by Dr. Jonas Salk of the anti-polio vaccine, which was to spread a mantle of protection over millions of American children. How did people receive the news? Were there any deniers back then or anything like that? Yeah, I asked about that, especially because it would have been a brand new vaccine that we were giving to children first. No, there were no deniers. There were no anti-vaxxers. There were no, I'm going to wait and see if the long-term effects cause something. People lined up to get it. Believe me, as soon as that vaccine came out, my parents took all four of us. There were four children in the family, and we were going to get the vaccine whether we needed it or not. <laughs> you know, there was a big national campaign. Elvis was the face of polio vaccinations. People were grateful. Yeah, you actually talked to someone who said that no one wanted to be known as a, quote, psychopathic monster. That's right. Yeah. One of the people I interviewed for this story is Paula Cannon, who's a professor of virology at the USC Keck School of Medicine. The whole sense of the greater good, that this was the only way out of this terrible scourge on, on children, especially. Um, you would have had to have been a psychopathic monster <laughs> not to want to be part of the solution. It was the greater good. It was This was a scourge that was paralyzing children. How could you not want to be part of the solution to that? After the break, the huge leaps in how we both prevent and treat HIV and AIDS in this country. Stay tuned.
So, Jessica, vaccines basically ended polio in the U.S. The last case was in 1993, and the afflicted person was a traveler from another country. But those who have contracted HIV and AIDS, they haven't been as lucky. The CDC first reported on a handful of cases back in 1981, and the initial response from the Reagan administration was infamously slow. But the federal government and private institutions have labored for decades to try to stop the spread of that disease. What's the latest there? You know, it's really incredible how much the case fatalities have dropped from HIV. In my research, I found that if you contracted HIV in the early 1980s... The figures show AIDS holding a powerful place among the killers of America's young adults. There was a 50% chance you would be dead within two years. AIDS and related infections were the second leading cause of death among young men. If you contracted HIV in recent years, it's less than half a percent that you would die of it. We've made incredible leaps in how we prevent and treat HIV and AIDS in the United States. But back when it first began, yeah, people saw it as a death sentence, and it kind of was. We expected that HIV certainly would be an important cause of death in cities like New York City um, and San Francisco. But we didn't expect it to be the leading cause of death in places such as Columbus, Ohio, uh, Kansas City, uh, Austin, Texas. So... Despite trillions of dollars in spending and, you know, all these treatments that allow people to live with HIV, HIV never ended. No, HIV is still going on. You know, like I said, I spoke to Paula Cannon and her research throughout her career has focused very heavily on the virus that causes AIDS, on HIV. And she said it was this huge irony that people are rejecting a vaccine. People would be desperately pleased if there were vaccines. So it's pretty ironic when you view it from the point of view of somebody who works on HIV or has HIV. We do have PrEP, which is a similar kind of preventive measure, but it's not a vaccine against it. But yeah, that's a disease that we've been dealing with for 40 years and we still have. And that became endemic. People contract HIV every year and people die of AIDS every year. People are like, yeah, well, it's just a thing and we put up with it. And we as a society accept a certain number of, of cases and deaths. At what point do you think society just makes its peace with a pandemic becoming endemic? That's a great question. I couldn't tell you exactly, oh, it's when you have X many cases and, and Y many deaths. But we do reach a point, like we have with the flu, like we have with HIV, where we say, yeah, some people are going to get it and some people are going to die. And we're going to put some funding toward preventing that, but not like a ton. I mean, if you look at how low flu deaths were in the last flu season, it's because we were social distancing. People were home. People were not traveling. Schools were closed. Very, very, very few people died of the flu. If we did that every single winter, we'd lose a lot fewer people to the flu. But we have these sort of trade-offs. We say, okay, we are not going to shut down all of society between October and February every year to reach zero flu deaths. There's going to be a number of them, and we are just going to kind of accept that. Another pandemic you talked about was SARS, and that was a precursor to COVID-19 in the world's imagination. Airborne, thought to have emerged from China. They even have similar scientific names, SARS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2, but there's important differences between them. I remember when SARS was happening, this was 2003, and I remember how panicked people were. I didn't realize there were no deaths in the United States. For some reason, SARS had loomed very large in my memory, and I assumed thousands of people must have had it. We must have had some deaths. Same. We only had, I think it was 115 people who were suspected of having SARS in the United States, eight confirmed cases total, and mm. nobody died of it in the U.S. And people got a lot sicker with SARS and don't really spread it when they had the symptoms. 
Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. One of the biggest differences between COVID and all of the other outbreaks and pandemics that I looked at for this story is the asymptomatic spread. If you had SARS, you knew you had SARS and you were symptomatic when you were contagious. Those two things happened at the same time. There was no way to be like, I think I just like was around a cat for too long, but it was actually SARS. You were ill, you were really, really ill. SARS was huge, as you said, 2003, but then it was over, like less than a year and a half. So how did we get over it if we ever did? Yes, SARS, it's actually still kind of a mystery. Uh, What happened with SARS? Because it vanished. It's not like, oh yeah, people still catch SARS. We're just not that many. It it wasn't like the 1918 flu. Right, no, it's not like, oh, it attenuated. No, the virus that caused SARS is gone. It was basically controlled by public health measures, like masking and hand washing and, and all that other good stuff. Yeah, that's stuff that we should still be doing. And finally, Jessica, I'm not going to ask you how our current pandemic ends because I don't want to jinx it. But at the same time, I hope folks that are hearing realize that pandemics come and go and then another one's going to come. So instead of doom scrolling, what should we be keeping in mind? I think if you look at how previous pandemics ended and you look at what's going on with COVID, there was a point in time where maybe we as like a species or the whole globe could have really come together with robust public health measures and, and vaccine technology and eradicating COVID. That point in time is in the rearview mirror. I do not think we are going to see a day where we're like, well, no more COVID anywhere. It's all over and it's gone forever. I think at this point it is going to become endemic, uh, and I hope that we start to see the strains attenuate or get less severe, which might be what's happening with Omicron, but who's to say right now it's still so, so early. I think if you look at what ended previous pandemics, it's going to be a mix of those things. It's going to be investment in public health. It's going to be vaccines and boosters. But I think what people should keep in mind is that they need to Listen to public health officials. They need to read what public health officials and virologists and the people who really know this stuff are saying and do it. Jessica, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, a medical historian on how pandemics of the past changed humanity. So talking with Jessica got us thinking, what more can we learn from even earlier pandemics? We covered 20th century ones with Jessica, but what about the Black Death, smallpox, cholera, all the other ones that ravaged the world in earlier centuries? Those arguably even left bigger pockmarks on society. What can those pandemics from the past teach us about how we live today? Frank Snowden knows he's professor emeritus of history at Yale and has spent the last 40 years looking at how pandemics have changed society. Frank, welcome to The Times. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. You've said before that each pandemic had its own personality and its own time and place. What do you mean by that? I mean that, first of all, microbes have no agency. They don't have a design to infect us. And they reach us only through ways that we ourselves create, something that we often forgot. A good example would be, you mentioned Asiatic cholera, which was the most dreaded disease of the 19th century. It was the perfect disease spread by the oral fecal route 
for the era of the Industrial Revolution in its takeoff with massive urbanization that was unplanned and had an infrastructure that was overwhelmed by people moving to cities, working in factories and workshops and all the rest of it. And this led to catastrophic sanitary conditions. But the establishment of the sanitary revolution in the 19th century transformed that. We don't any longer experience Asiatic cholera as a major problem. We talk about the Black Plague and we put it to the you know Middle Ages. You just talked about cholera. You hear about other diseases like typhoid. And they're all tied to specific eras. Sometimes they're a couple of years, sometimes they're centuries. What's COVID's personality then? Could we have seen this particular pandemic at any other point in history? This particular pandemic, I think, is really a product of globalization. Ah. Globalization is interconnectivity, close interconnectivity by people across vast distances. So let us say a microbe in Jakarta can affect a person in the morning. That person can take a plane and the microbe can land in Los Angeles by that afternoon. So it's that rapid. And then the population of the world is we're nearing 8 billion people. And as we're destroying the forests around us by invading all of that, we're bringing a new and more frequent contacts with wild animals we never encountered often before. COVID-19 gave us the elbow bump, the phrase social distancing, sweatpants as work clothes. We all have these new routines that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. How did earlier pandemics permanently change day-to-day life? Oh, the Black Death you mentioned is actually what brought us the response of public health Ah. that we see today. That is creating a centralized authority with the power to enact health provisions. And these at the time of the Black Death were ones that we would recognize today. Uh, That is to say, uh, social distancing, quarantine, isolation, also PPE was something that you could have seen. Uh, The Renaissance physicians, they had plague costumes. Yeah, the big nose, like spy versus spy. Yes, and and the, the waxed garment. And also they had a rod, which was to keep people downwind of them at a a reliable distance. Uh, If someone from 1918 went in a time machine and arrived in our midst, they wouldn't be at all surprised. They'd say, oh, you're just like us, wearing masks. All of the theaters closed down, schools closed down. The measures that were adopted in terms of public health were very much the same. Damn. And everybody's now talking about how COVID won't really ever go away. It'll become endemic, just something we sort of live with. So if that's the case, is it even worth even declaring this pandemic over? Well, I would take the view that the idea of going back to normal at some time is totally unrealistic. And we need to think instead of how are we going to live? I'm not speaking about Armageddon here. Mm -hmm. I'm saying we have to adapt to the new reality and to take measures that will enable us to survive in our new conditions. That's the challenge that we're facing as human beings. 
How does that influence the psychology of a society? It influences psychology really profoundly, I believe. One reason is, unlike a natural disaster, this doesn't end in the same way. It's long-term. And I think it exposes human beings to what they thought we were beyond because of science. We thought maybe we were beyond the age of pandemic disease that could be devastating. Mm. And now we're having an existential dread when we realize that actually this is something that's part of our present and our future. And so it's really powerful. And the measures that had to be taken at certain points also fed into that because they created isolation. This is something we weren't prepared for as part of this pandemic, but the psychologists are now telling us that the demand for counseling is going through the roof, that people are permanently anxious, they can't sleep, they're reporting unprecedented levels of depression, and it wouldn't be the first time that this happened. Even a comparatively small epidemic like SARS in Hong Kong, they've done studies, and a decade later now, more than a decade, uh, we have the fact that people who are either doctors or patients are still being treated for depression and anxiety. Yeah, you're talking about how pandemics affect the mind and even our individual relationships, but there's also how they influence society. And one of the interesting things that I've seen with pandemics is that there's always conspiracies swirling around them. There's always a scapegoat. But now we're in the Internet age. How has that made this pandemic different from those in the past? And should it change the way we plan for the next one? I think that we could say that the pandemic diseases, and one of the reasons it's so interesting to study them, is that they reflect ourselves back to ourselves. Mm. We see who we are, how we live with each other, what our priorities are, and the dark and the light sides are both very visible. There's also a bright side we see in the heroism of frontline workers and so forth. But in addition, there is this really dark side of finding a scapegoat to blame. We see this in the Black Death. There was the hunt for witches who were burned. The first Holocaust of anti-Semitism took place as the Black Death was beginning to invade Europe. It was blamed on Jews. And this goes along with every pandemic. Some measure of this has taken place. The problem now is rumor travels fast. But it's never traveled as quickly as it does with social media and the Internet. And so this provides an ideal way for people who have fears and also malevolent intentions to spread every kind of possible conspiracy. And so we need to deal with that. We need to deal with the pandemic of disinformation with closer regulation and monitoring of our internet. It's been created, but it's we've never established a governance for it. Frank, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, masters of disasters, snow edition. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Kinsey Moreland and Lauren Rabb. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>